Please remain standing as we recite the Shema together, as Jesus would have done multiple times each day. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. The scripture this morning is from the ninth chapter of Genesis. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. When the story of Noah was compiled... The people of Israel were in the midst of the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian people around them had stories of creation, stories of sin, and stories of towers and fathers of the nation that sound eerily similar to the stories that we find within our own Bible. They also had a story of a flood. And it would seem to me that to understand why the Hebrew people found this story important enough to place in our Bible... It would be a good idea to explore a story that many of them would have been very familiar with. In the Babylonian version of the flood narrative, people are noisy. People eat and yell and cry and fight. And they just generally create a whole lot of noise. And the Babylonian god Enlil, who was a rather testy kind of god, got very annoyed with humanity. It seemed that every time that he tried to take a nap, humanity made noise. And so Enlil got fed up, and he decided that he would do something about this. So first he sends a drought, hoping that this drought would silence humanity, but humanity survives. Next he sends a famine, but again the noisy humans survive. He finally tries a plague. But the humans persist in making their noise and maybe even seem to get louder. And so Enlil is infuriated. And finally, he decides to send a flood in order to silence humanity. He warns the other gods not to tell the humans because surely one of them has been betraying him and telling the humans how to survive each of these disasters. His suspicions prove to be correct Because another god, Ea, the god of mischief, has been telling the humans what to do and how to get out of the mess. And so Ea does this again. 
Ea comes down to earth and finds his favorite human being. And he tells this human being that Enlil is going to send a flood. That this human needs to build a boat. He needs to take his wife and his kids. And he needs to take a number of animals and put them on this boat. And that this way they might survive and flourish after this flood. Enlil sends the flood. And this one man and his family and his animals survive. When Enlil notices that humanity has survived yet again, again he is enraged. He does find out that Ea is the one that's been helping humanity. But Ea does explain to Enlil that this doesn't make any sense. It is unjust to try to kill all of humanity. And what's more, if we kill humanity... That leaves us in a bad place as well because it is humanity's sacrifices that keep us fed, keep us entertained. So it wouldn't be a very good thing if we killed them. So the council of all the Babylonian gods gathered together and they decided that they would never again try to kill all of humanity. But they would control the population, control the noise because they didn't want it to get it loud all over again. So here are a few of the easy conclusions that we can come up with about the gods of the Babylonians. They are petty. They are manipulative. They are short-sighted. They are self-aggrandizing. They're not very smart. And they are self-centered. But now that we know this Babylonian story of the flood, perhaps we can see what makes our God and our story a little bit different. Our story, for instance, begins with God not being angry about noise, but being troubled over the state with which humanity has found themselves. From the beginning of Genesis, there has been this constant rejection on the part of God's creation, moving away from God, and we steadily move away. In the original Hebrew in this story, God is said to be grieving within his heart over where humanity is. In our story, this causes God to decide that the best way to end the violence on the earth is unfortunately to commit a supreme act of violence and to kill humanity. He does, however, notice one righteous man who's Noah. He instructs Noah to build a boat. Noah is to take his sons, his wife, and his wife, the wives of his three sons, take them aboard the boat with a number of animals, And wait out the deluge. And so Noah, his three sons, his wife, and the wives of his three sons enter the ark. And the rains begin. And with the rains comes destruction. The storm rages for 40 days. And for 150 days, the waters flooded the earth. These lengths of time convey to the Hebrew listener that this was a long time, that it seemed like these storms would never cease, that it seemed that it would be unending, that these people were trapped in a boat in the midst of a chaotic abyss. But there is in our story a turning point. In verse 1 of chapter 8, it says that God remembered Noah. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann explains that this turn is not only made in the events of the story, but within God himself. God had previously set out to destroy his creation, but in this remembering of Noah, God has turned toward us in a new way. It is in the remembering of Noah, the remembering of God, and only that which gives hope 
and makes new life possible, says Brueggemann. Where the flood would have wiped out the memory of anything that came before it, this God is not going to allow that memory to fade. This God will not be governed by any natural disaster, whether or not he may have been the cause of it. This God is not driven by his own anger or his own pettiness. But this God will remember us in our times of chaos and uncertainty. So the waters finally subside. And Noah and his three sons and his wife and his son's three wives emerge from the ark. In our narrative, this phrase, Noah and his three sons and his wife and his son's three wives, is used three times. These eight people are listed repetitively. And the author is trying to tell us something through this. In Hebrew, every number has a deeper meaning, like these numbers 40 and 150 mean unending time or a long time or something that seems to drag on forever. The number eight had a meaning as well. The number eight represented hope, it represented rebirth, and it represented new beginnings. By calling our attention to these eight people, these eight people, these eight people, over and over again, the author of our narrative is showing us that in this story, this God is about hope. This God is about remembrance, compassion, forgiveness, and rebirth. New beginnings. This God is not like the Babylonian gods. At the end of chapter 8 of Genesis, it says that God, again in his heart, says to himself, even though humanity will continue to walk their own path away from me, I have decided not to do this again. I will never again curse the ground, and never again will I seek to destroy my creation. In this story, God comes to a realization that for his vision of a perfect union with the creation to come to fruition, he has to take the burden of salvation and union on himself. There are several stories in the Hebrew scriptures that have God deciding to start over with his creation, with Moses. But each time he draws back, he takes this task on himself And the mechanism through which he does this is covenant. A covenant is like a promise or a contract, but it carries much more weight. First, the covenant is unending. There is no term limit. There's no expiration date on a covenant. When a covenant is entered, it is not left. A covenant, secondly, is unconditional. When covenant is made and one party fails to do what they've said they would do, the other party is still bound to do their part. And finally, a covenant usually has some sort of sign or memento to help the people that are involved in the covenant remember what it is that they have promised. As an example, imagine that there's two villages. And this village, on this side, the first village can offer protection to a second village. And the second village has a lot of food, so they can offer food to the first. And so these two villages decide that they want to enter covenant together. When they decide this, they'll make some sign of it. Perhaps they will have the daughter of one chieftain and the daughter or the son of another chieftain get married. And it's in this covenant that these two communities bind themselves together in an almost intimate way. And so the first community knows that they will always have food. 
And the second community knows that from the first they will always have protection. And because this covenant is unconditional, if there is famine and the second community is not able to supply their food, the first community, in honoring the covenant, will still supply protection. And it goes the other way as well. And so God makes a covenant like this with Noah. This is something the Babylonian gods would never have even considered. Humanity for the Babylonian gods are merely for entertainment, for subsistence, for entertainment. We're largely a nuisance. But for our God, and the God in this story of Noah, we're not just subservient. We're partners with God in his mission and vision. And he makes covenants with us. God promises in this covenant that he will never again destroy all flesh upon the earth. Noah's part in the covenant is pretty simple. God simply reiterates the charge to Adam and Eve to be fruitful, to multiply, and to care for the world around you. But God's part is a little harder. He knows in his heart that humanity will stray from that path over and over again. And that he will have to bear the movement, bear the burden of moving these people forward with loving kindness. God's covenant with us means that our behavior, when we fail to meet our side of the covenant, does not influence whether God keeps his side of the bargain. And every time that we see a rainbow in the sky, we are reminded of God's faithfulness. Our God is not petty like we see in those Babylonian gods. Our God is loving and he's kind and he grieves over us and he celebrates with us and he makes covenant with us. And so if this story is about a covenant making God, what can that tell us about ourselves and the way that we relate to the world around us and to this community? In her book, Living Into Community, Christine Pohl says that even... When we fail to keep our promises to God, God is faithful. The Christian faith is rooted in promise. And we as Christians understand ourselves as people of the new covenant, the new promise. A covenant-making, promise-keeping God has formed a people of promise, born by God's own fidelity. And so as people of God, we are called to be people of covenant. We are called to be like our God and not like the gods of the Babylonians. We're to put our pettiness, our short-sightedness, and our self-centeredness aside and enter into covenant with God and with the community around us. Making covenant with this community enables us to learn to trust and care for one another, to provide for each other, to help us grow. Our church, and the universal church, both are called to be covenant communities. And so today we seek to remind ourselves of this. We, like God, have entered into covenant, both with Him and in the community around us, in our marriages, in our faith. We remind ourselves that the behavior with those that we have made covenant with really has no bearing on whether or not we keep our side of the covenant. We remind ourselves that it is through this kind of covenant relationship that God has given us our lives 
And God has sustained us. And so in an act of remembrance of these covenants, please join me in reciting this covenant prayer found in your bulletin. Eternal God, we have made promises to contribute to the well-being and upbringing of the children of this community. We remember those promises today. We have made promises to contribute to the strengthening of marriages within this community. We remember those promises today. We have made promises to contribute our prayers, presence, gifts, and service to this community. We remember those promises today. We have made promises to love and forgive one another. We remember those promises today. Through these promises, we seek to enable our community to grow together in love and neighborliness. All of these promises are important to us individually and as a community. You made promises to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, and to us, and we are grateful. Remind us of each of these promises. Help us to fulfill them. Amen.